Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today's preacher is A.W. Tozer. He began his lifelong pursuit of God after hearing a street preacher in Akron, Ohio, at the age of 17. This self-taught theologian committed his life to the ministry of God's Word as a pastor, teacher, and writer. He is the author of the beloved classic, The Pursuit of God. A.W. Tozer's message is simply worship. conclusion, a series of talks on worship, which I have been trying to give, and you know the text has been the two, one from the old and one from the new, so shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, worship thou him. Then Peter's words in the 10th chapter of Acts, he is Lord of all. Tonight, I want to read from the Song of Solomon, Solomon's Song, chapter 5, verse 8 and following. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick of love, that is, I am lovesick. And they ask her, What is thy beloved more than another beloved, O thou fairest among women? What is thy beloved more than another beloved, that thou dost so charge us? She replies, My beloved is white and ruddy, chiefest among ten thousand. His head is as the most fine gold, his locks are bushy and black as a raven. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and thickly set. His cheeks are as a bed of spices and sweet flowers, his lips like lilies dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. His hands are as gold rings set with beryl, his belly has a bright ivory overlaid with sapphire, his legs are as pillars of marble set with sockets of fine gold. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, yea, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Now the song of Solomon, sometimes called canticle, is another word for song, is a song of love. It is the song of the shepherd and his fair young bride-to-be and a rich and worldly rival that is seeking to draw her away from her shepherd lover. And then, after much dialogue and unutterably beautiful poetry, it is summed up in 8.7, it says, Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would utterly be content. That is the sum of it, the strong melody of love that runs through this. 
is heard sounding all through to the climax. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ is the shepherd. This has been believed by the church from the beginning. And the redeemed church is the fair bride. And in an hour of distress, she tells the daughters of Jerusalem, If you find my beloved, tell him that I am sick of yearning for him. And of course, they ask her the question, well, why, why do you come to us like this? We, we have boyfriends too. We, we know a lot of fine young men. What is it, is it about your beloved? More than any other beloved, you'd send us out over the country telling, hunting him up to tell him the bride is sick of love. Then she answered it. My beloved is white and ruddy. I read it. And this is my beloved, and he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. To that question, what is thy beloved more than another? David also answers in the 45th Psalm. He says he's fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured forth from his lips, and he rides forth in might and glory and majesty and prosperity and meekness and righteousness, and his throne is forever and ever. He goes on to describe him in what he calls a good matter, touching the king. His pen is the pen of a ready writer, his tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Then Peter rises higher than all of them put together, this apostle, and simply says in one great broad sweep, he is Lord of all. Now this is our beloved. This is the one that we have been born to worship. This is the one that God made us to worship. And let's talk a little bit about what he is the Lord of. I've already, of course, over the nights preceding these, this, have talked about his being Lord of life and Lord of being and so on. And now I speak of his being Lord of wisdom briefly. He is Lord of wisdom and in him is hidden all wisdom and all knowledge. And it's hidden away. And all the deep eternal purposes are his because of his perfect wisdom he is enabled to, to play the checkers across the board of the universe and, and across the board of time and eternity, making everything work out right. I don't mind saying to you, dear people, that if all I knew of Christianity was what I'm hearing these days, mostly, I don't think I'd be too interested. I don't think I'd be much interested in the Christ that was always trying to get something out of. Always something. You don't have it, and he had it, and you go to him and you get it. And Well, now, that is a part of the Bible, of course, but it's, it's rather, it's rather uh, the, the lower side of it. The higher side of it is who he is and... Who were called to worship? What is thy beloved? Not a word was said there about what he had for her, but just the fact that he was something. She described him in, in language that could be indelicate in her passionate outpouring. What is your beloved? Why, she said, he's white and ruddy. His, 
chiefest among ten thousand. And his eyes are like the eyes of doves by the rivers of water washed with milk and fiddly set. And his cheeks are a bed of spices, and his lips like lilies dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. His mouth is sweet, yea, is altogether lovely. And she didn't say, why, don't you know why I love him? Because when I'm tired, he rests me, and when I'm afraid, he takes my fear away, and when I want a job, he gets it for me, and when I want a bigger car, I ask him. When I want to, to have health, he heals me, and now he helps his people, and I believe. And the young man here tonight who prayed a year for a car and God gave it to him, I believe in that. I believe that God does those things for people. First few years of my ministry, if I couldn't pray and ask God for things, I'd have starved to death, and not only that, dragged my wife down with me. So I believe in answered prayer, all right, but then that's not all, and certainly that's not even, that's, that's the lowest section of it. He is the, the Lord of all wisdom, and he is the Lord of the Father of the everlasting ages. Not the everlasting Father, as it says in our King James Version, the Father of the everlasting ages. He lays out the ages as an architect lays out his blueprint. He lays out the ages as a real estate development man lays out small town and then builds, as our friend Buckles did down here. Lays it out and then builds hundreds of houses on it. And so he is not dealing with buildings and local developments. He's dealing with the ages. And he is the Lord of all wisdom. And because he's perfect in wisdom, he is able to do this. And history is the slow development of his purposes, you see. You take a house that's being built, the architect has drawn it down to the last tiny little dot and a tiny little X. He knows everything about it. It's right his name at the bottom. He turned it over to the, to the contractor and he has farmed it out to the electrician and the plumber and all the rest. And uh, you go down by there sometime, and you say uh, casually, I wonder what that's going to be. It's a mess now. There it is. There's a steam shovel in there with his great ugly nose plowing out a hole and throwing it up on the bank or into trucks to haul away. And then they're unloading bricks there. And it's just a, it's just a confused conglomeration of this and that. You say, what's this? And then you come back by there six or eight, ten months later, and you see a charming house there. The, the landscapers have even been in, and the, the trees, the evergreens are standing there with their green spikes beside the windows, and it's a beautiful thing. And a child playing on the lawn. Well, uh, we ask you to believe, my friends, that, that the Father of the everlasting ages, the Lord of all wisdom, is, has laid out his plans and he's working toward them. And you and I go by and we see a church all mixed up and we see her sore distressed by schisms rent asunder by heresy distressed. We see her backslidden in one part of the world and 
We see confusion in another part of the world and we shrug our shoulders and say, what is thy beloved anyway? What is all this? And the answer is, he is the Lord of the wise ages and he's laying it all out. And what you're seeing now is only the steam shovel working, that's all. Only the truck backed up with bricks. That's what you're seeing. You're only seeing workmen in overalls going about killing time. That's all you're seeing. You're just seeing people, and people make you sick because of the way we do. The way we backslide and tumble around and get mixed up and run after will-o'-the-wisps and think it's uh, the Shekinah glory and hear an owl hoot and think it's the silver trumpet take off in the wrong direction, spend a century catching up on ourselves and backing out. And history smiles at us, but don't, don't, don't be too sure, brother. Come back in another millennium or so and see what the Lord of all wisdom has done with what he's got. See then what he's done. He's the Lord of all wisdom. And history is the slow development of his purposes. And he's the Lord of all righteousness. You know what? I'm glad I'm attached to something good. That there's something good somewhere in the universe. Now, I couldn't possibly be a Pollyanna optimist. I'm born, I was born wrong. And I had to have a different father and mother. And a different ancestral line back at least ten generations. If I could, for me to have been an odd Pollyanna, a plum-pudding philosopher that believed that everything was good. And uh, I can't believe that. I don't think it's true. There's so much that isn't right everywhere, and we might as well admit it. We just might as well admit it. If you don't believe it, leave your car unlocked out there, and then go out and see you get a bigger sermon than I can preach to you. It'll be gone. Righteousness. And then we, we imagine that We've got the Pharisees who think they're righteous, and they're not. They're just self-righteous hypocrites. We've got politicians that lie and make all kinds of promises which they don't intend to keep. And the only honest one that I've known of in my lifetime has been Wendell Wilkie. When somebody challenged him with a promise that he made during the campaign, he said those were just campaign promises. And he was the only one that I know of honest enough to admit he lied to get elected. He didn't get elected, did he lied anyhow and admitted it, which was something. Righteousness is not found. If you think it is, get on a bus somewhere when there's a crowd, and you'll find that no matter how old and feeble you are, you'll get the rib or two cracked or at least badly dinged by the elbow of some housewife on her way home. Bless you. And uh, we're just not good. People are just not good. Among the first things we learn to do, something bad and something mean. Sin is everywhere. I don't know whether Brother McAfee's song, I told him I never cared much for that song, but he loves it and he sings it and has other people singing it, and I begin to like it myself. I want a principle within Cry to God for a principle of holiness within us, to make us strong against the world of evil outside of us. I'm beginning to see John and Charles Wesley had something there. And you know, brother and sister, that uh, this is a Reformation Sunday. Well, uh, 
Do you know that there's iniquity everywhere and I want to be joined to something good? You say, well, I'm an American. I'm an American too. I was born here. Didn't cost me a dime to become an American. Cost my father a little and my mother, but didn't cost me a dime. I'm an American and I'll never be anything else. But an American, and when they bury me, there will be a little bit of America, as the poet said, wherever I may be placed. You've got to be pretty much of a, you've got to be an awful sissy to believe in the total righteousness of the United States of America, don't you? You've got to be an awful fool. Really, an awful fool. That buzzard's nest up there at Washington. God bless them. Doesn't make any difference whether they're Democrats or Republicans are in there. They're a bunch of, a lot of them at least, a bunch of crooks. And they mean all right, but they're Adam's fallen brood, doing the best they can. We'd probably do worse, so we can pray for them and ask God to have mercy on them, but that's about it. But uh, here we go and, and turn on the radio to try to get something educational or something cultural and all we get is songs sung about automobiles and cigarettes. Well, it's not a good world we live in. It's a bad world. And uh, you can become a Protestant. All right, that doesn't help much. You become an American or be an American, and that doesn't help too much. But when you attach yourself to the Lord of glory, you're, you're connected with something righteous, something that's really righteous, not, not Pollyannish, but something really righteous. He is righteousness itself. The call of the concept of righteousness and all of the possibility of righteousness are all summed up in him. But unto the Lord, unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. So we have there a perfectly righteous Savior, a perfectly righteous Savior. They spied on him. They sent the enemy to search into his life. You imagine if Jesus had made a mistake anywhere down the line? Can you imagine if Jesus had foot had slipped once, even once down the line? Can you imagine if Jesus had lost his temper once, or if Jesus had been selfish once? You imagine if Jesus had done one thing that you and I take for granted, even once? Can you imagine that all the sharp, beady eyes of hell were following him, trying to catch something out of his mouth? And when the end of his days had almost come, he turned on them and said, Which of you convicted me of sin? Not a one of you. Righteousness was his He's the high priest, and if you go back to the Old Testament, you'll find that when the high priest went into the holy place, he wore a claw on his shoulders and on his breast certain uh, affairs that had been prescribed. But upon his forehead he wore a mitre, and who knows what was on that mitre? Holiness unto the Lord. He was saying the best he could. Even that man had to have a sacrifice made for him. But he was trying to say in symbol what's been fulfilled in fact that when he, the high priest of all high priests, came, he would wear on his forehead holiness unto the Lord. 
And when they in mockery crash down that crown of thorns upon his brow, if they'd had the eyes of a prophet, they could have seen a mitre there, holiness unto the Lord. He is the Lord of all righteousness and the Lord of all mercy, because he establishes his kingdom of re- reclaimed rebels, Jesus does, He redeemed them, and he won them, and he renews the right spirit within them. But everybody in this kingdom is a redeemed rebel. You know what we think about people that have betrayed our country? Uh, We we scarcely forgive them. We forgive them, but we always look askance upon them. Those who have fallen in, as some have, into communism and have spied for their, or at least have, have helped, the communistic uh, scheme, and then they've gotten their eyes open, have turned away from it, gone to the FBI, admitted it, straightened their lives out. Even them we look at with, with a bit of doubt. But did you ever stop to think that Jesus Christ hasn't got a single member of his kingdom anywhere that wasn't a former spy and rebel for the enemy? Ever thought of it? If it's bad, if it's bad for a man in Washington or Oak Hill, or University of Chicago, to get secrets and take them and tell them to the enemy. If that's bad, and it is bad, and they they hang them for it, why, how much worse to be over on the side of the enemy against the Lord of glory, as all sinners are. And don't forget it, all sinners are. And that's why I I smile when I see an old self Satisfied deacon, sitting with his hands crossed, looking like a statue of St. Francis. He is a very, very godly man indeed, and very conscious of it. All right, Deacon Jones, don't you know what you were? You were a rebel and a spy, and you sold out the secrets of the kingdom of God and collaborated with the enemy and lived to overthrow the holy kingdom of God. And that's all of us, and there isn't a one of us it doesn't include, not a one of us. And if you don't like that, then you're no theologian. If you knew your Bible, you'd agree with me, because that's what we all were. But mercy, oh, the mercy, Lord of all mercy. Sometime I want to preach a sermon on mercy. I don't think I ever have. i of course, have woven it into all of my preaching, but think of the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. In utter mercy, utter mercy, the mercy of our Lord. He is the Lord of all mercy. He's the Lord of all righteousness, and he sees how bad we are, but he's the Lord of all mercy, and he doesn't care. So in his great kindness, he takes rebels and unrighteous persons, sinners, and makes them his own, and establishes them in righteousness, and renews a right spirit within them. And then we have a church, we have a cell, a company of believers met together, and he's their Lord. And he's the Lord of all power. Now, here's some scripture, just let me give it to you. After these things, I heard a great voice, a great voice of much people in heaven saying, and what do you suppose they were saying? Alleluia. Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. 
This isn't hysteria, but it's ecstasy. There's a difference. Hysteria is one thing, but ecstasy is another. And this, this was ecstasy. They said, Hallelujah, and left the H off. And said, Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he has judged the great horror which did corrupt the earth and with their fornication. And hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. Here we have it again, no hysteria, but a lot of ecstasy. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And then said John, then said John, You know, it would be worthwhile getting put in a salt mine on the Isle of Patmos to have a vision like that, wouldn't it? Really would. It'd be better to get onto a salt mine. They say they had him in the salt mine over there in the Isle of Patmos. That fella who'd lived out on the sea catching fish and walked the sandy shores and smelled the fresh air. Now he's in a mine. And it's dark in there and suddenly the Lord lifts him into the spirit on the Lord's day. And he hears a voice saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready. See, there's the song of Solomon in the New Testament God. To her was granted she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he said unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are they. And he said, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell on my feet to worship him. And he said, don't you worship me. I am thy fellow servant of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And I heard and I saw heaven open. I'm waiting around, brethren. I'm waiting around. I saw heaven open. Moses did, and Isaiah did, and Ezekiel did, and, and John did. And I'm waiting around. Paul did, I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. There we have this victorious Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of all power. He is the Lord of all power. You know, sin has scarred the world back in the state of Pennsylvania. They have a do what they call strip mining. And I was angry in my heart when I saw what they'd done to our lovely Pennsylvania hills. These greedy dogs had gone, and with their great machinery, they had stripped away the foliage and gone down into the bowels of the beautiful hillsides and taken out a cheap coal Anything to get a little money. And the government says, when you take it and strip mine, you got to fill it up again or it'll cost you $100 an acre. And they grin and say, it'll cost us more than $100 an acre to fill it up so they pay their fine and leave it there. And when I was back this last summer, I drove up, they drove me up back past the old place and I looked out for it when I was there for five years before. It had lain there like a wounded man. Lain there all gouged and 
and ugly, where in my boyhood days it had been beautiful to see as the green trees met the blue sky above. But now it was scarred, and they paid their fine because it was cheaper than to fulfill their promise. And they left her there, that lovely hillside, all gouged and cut and bruised. And when I was back, I could have wept to see how kindly Mother Nature had gone to work. And where four or five years before it was just an ugly hole, now the sun and the rain and the wind and the waves and the beautiful rain that God sent down in sheets upon that hillside as I've seen it fall many times had begun to bring out the blossoms that I didn't know were there. And now nature is covering up her wounds, her scars, her ugliness. God made the world beautiful. And if you go out and make it ugly, God in five years will make it beautiful again. And the human race is ugly. Ugly Though made in the image of God and potentialities of beauty, ugly in its sin. I think, my brethren, that the ugliest place in the world is hell. The ugliest place in the universe is hell. And when a man says ugly is hell, he's using a proper and valid comparison. For there's nothing as ugly as hell, but surely hell is the ugliest place in the universe it is that against which all other ugliness can be compared. And surely heaven is the most beautiful place, the place of supreme beauty, its power that knows no limit and wisdom free from bound. The beatific vision shall glad the saints around. And the peace of all the faithful and the calm of all the blessed, inviolate, unvaried, divinest, sweetest, best, it shall all be there. So if hell is the ugliest place in the universe, surely the most beautiful place will be heaven, for all harmony will be there and all fragrance and all its charm. But between heaven, which is the epitome of all supreme beauty, and hell, which is the essence of all ugliness, there lies the poor scarred world. Poor earth lies like a pitiful dying woman clothed in rags that once was a beauty that could have stood and been admired by the ages. Now sin has cut her down and she's tattered and torn. And from the Nile to the Mississippi and from California to Bangkok and from the North Pole to the South Pole, wherever human beings go, we find moral ugliness and sin and hatred and suspicion and name-calling and all the rest. And the beautiful race that the Lord made to be his bride, now in her pathetic ugliness lies dying clothed in rags. But Jesus Christ, the Lord of mercy, came to save her and took upon himself her flesh, her own flesh, and was made in the likeness of man, and for sin he gave himself to die. And there's going to be a restoration, and that poor, bruised, dying thing, that poor, bruised, dying thing years ago, I read that great book, that great book, I suppose, that 
It's one of the greatest book ever written of its kind, Les Miserables, the great book by Victor Hugo. In it, there was one of the most tender and pathetic passages that I think I ever read in all literature. You'd have to go to the Bible to find anything as deeply moving. Here was a young man, one of the upper class, the nobles, and here was the woman that he was in love with. You know, they weave that all in. And here in the middle was a pale-faced little urchin girl from the streets of Paris who, with her poor rags and her pale, tubercular face, she also loved the nobleman but didn't dare say so. So he used her to carry notes. They used her to carry notes back and forth. This great fellow never dreamed that this poor, sallow-faced girl dressed in rags had lost her heart to him and his nobility. So he went to find her and see what he could do to help her and find her lying in on a bed of rags in a tenement house in the low section of Paris, and this time she can't get up to greet him or carry a note to his fiancée. So he says to her, what can I do for you? And she said, well, I'm dying. I'll be gone in a moment. And she said, he said, what can I do? Tell me anything. And he, she said, well, would you do one thing for me before, before I close my eyes for the last time? And she said, would you, when, when I'm dead, would you kiss my forehead? And I don't know. I know it was only Victor Hugo's brilliant imagination, but I know Victor Hugo had seen that in Paris. He'd gone through the sewer. He'd seen this. And he knew about it. He knew that you can beat a girl down, and you can beat her down, and you can clothe her in rags, and you can fill her with tuberculosis, and you can make her so thin that the wind will blow her off course when she walks down a dirty street. She can't take out of her heart that thing that makes her want to love a man. You can't take that out. God said to Adam, you can't be alone. It isn't right. And he made a woman neat. Can't take that out. And Victor Hugo knew it. And he wrote that thing in. And I rarely quote from a fiction, but I thought that was worth it. My dear friends, our Lord Jesus Christ came down and found the race like that. Consumptive and wan and pale-faced. Dying. He took on himself all her death and, and rose the third day and took all the pathos out and all the pity out. And now she comes walking on the arm of her, leaning on the arm of her beloved, walking into the presence of God and he presents her. Not a poor pitiful wreck whose forehead he kissed when she was dead. But he's happy, bright-eyed bride, meet to be a partaker of the saints in light, worthy to stand beside him and be his bride in the glory yonder. What is her authority and what is her right and by what authority does she walk into the presence of the Father? You remember back in the, that chapter in the book of Genesis where Abraham calls his servant and sends his servant to get a bride for Isaac, his son? He goes to the well and finds Rebecca and says to Rebecca, that makes me homesick just to pronounce the name, but makes it, it says to Rebecca, 
We haven't got anything, our brains, our minds, our bodies, our souls, our spirits. We haven't got anything ourselves except what thou hast given us. What thou hast given us, we're not ashamed of. We're glad for and we're deeply grateful for. And we will go and appear and be there, dressed in thy righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Thou wilt know us and claim us and not be ashamed of. Because we were redeemed in thy mercy. Poor, scarred, bruised, pathetic, pale-faced, dying. Thou didst find us, save us, and lift us, and renew us, and give us life. We are thine. Thou bless this congregation, and we pray for any who may not be saved. They must see what they're missing, and turn quick to Jesus Christ. Say, Lord, I... I'm sorry for my past. From here on, I'm thine. You've been listening to A.W. Tozer. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.